Section 4 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism by the National Society of Music. The Foundations of the Classic Period, Chapter 2, Part 1. It is impossible to assign the so-called classic movement to a definite period. Its roots strike deep, and its limits are indefinite. It gathered momentum while the ideas from which it revolted were in their ascendancy. Its incipient stage was simultaneous with the reign of Italian opera. To define the meaning of classicism is as difficult as it is to fix the date of its beginning. By contrasting, as we usually do, the style of that period with a later one, usually called the Romantic, by comparing the ideal of classicism with the Romantic ideal of subjective expression, we get a negative rather than a positive definition, for classicism is generally presumed to be formal and antagonistic to that free ideal, a supposition which is not altogether exact, for it was just the reform of the classicists that opened the way to the free expressiveness which is characteristic of the Romantics. On the other hand, the classic ideal of just proportions, of pure objective beauty, did find expression in the crystallized forms, the clarified technique, and the flexible articulation that superseded the unreasonably ornate, the polyphonically obscure, or the superficial, trite monotony of a great part of pre-classic music. 1. When Gluck's Alceste first appeared on the boards of the Imperial Opera in 1768, Mozart, the twelve-year-old prodigy, was the pet of Viennese salons. Haydn, with thirty symphonies to his credit, was laying the musical foundations of a German Versailles at Esterhaz. Emmanuel Bach, practically at the end of his career, had just left Frederick the Great to become Telemann's successor at Hamburg and Stamitz, the great reformer of style and the real father of the modern orchestra, was already in his grave. On the other hand, there were still living men like Haas and Porpora, whose recollection reached back to the very beginnings of the century. These men belonged to an earlier age, and so did, in a sense, all the men discussed in the last chapter, with a few obvious exceptions. But their influence extended far into the period which we are about to discuss, their careers are practically contemporaneous with the classic movement. The beginnings of that movement, the first impulses of the essentially new spirit, we must seek in the work of men who were, like Pergolesi, the contemporaries of Bach and Handel. To the reader of history, perhaps, the most significant outward sign of the impending change is the shifting of musical supremacy away from Italy, which had held unbroken sway since the days of Palestrina. We have seen in the last chapter how, with Gluck, the operatic centre of gravity was transferred from Naples to Paris. We shall now witness a similar change in the realm of absolute music, this time in favour of Germany. The underlying causes of this change are fundamentally the same as those which directed the course of literature and general culture, namely the social and political upheaval that followed the Reformation and ushered in a century of strife and struggle that kindled the phoenix of a united and liberated nation, the Germany of today. A glance at the political history of the preceding era will help our comprehension of the period with which we have to deal. 
The Peace of Westphalia, 1648, had left the German Empire a dismembered, powerless mass. No less than three hundred independent states ruled over by petty tyrants, princes, dukes, margraves, bishops, each of whom had the right to coin money, raise armies and contract alliances, made up a nation defenseless against foes, weakened by internal and military oppression, steeped in abject misery and moral depravity. For over a hundred years it remained an abortion, an irregular body like unto a monster, as Puffendorf characterized it. Despite its pretensions, it was, as Voltaire said, quote, neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire, end quote. Flood after flood of pillaging soldiery had passed across its fertile acres, spreading ruin and dejection, the ravages of Louis XIV, the invasion of Kara Mustafa, the Spanish, the Swedish, the Polish wars, left the people victims of the selfish ambitions of brutish monarchs, men whose example set a premium upon crime. These noble robbers had made of the map of Europe a crazy quilt, the only sizable patches of which represented France, Austria, and Russia. Italy, like Germany, was divided, but with this difference, its several portions were actually ruled by the powers. Austria had Tuscany and Milan, Spain ruled Naples and Sicily, while France owned Sardinia and Savoy. Its superior culture, having thus the benefit of a benevolent paternalism, penetrated to the very hearts of the conquerors, to Vienna, Madrid, and Paris, and spread a thin but glittering coat all over Europe. Germany, on the other hand, was under the sham of independence, so constantly threatened with annihilation, so impoverished through strife, that the very idea of culture suggested a foreign thing, an exotic within the reach only of the mighty. Friedrich von Logau, in the early 17th century, bewailed the influx of foreign fashions into Germany, while Moshe Roche denounced the despisers and traitors of his fatherland, and Lessing, over a century later, was still attacking the predominance of French taste in literature. We must not wonder at this almost total eclipse of native culture, the fact that the racial genius could perpetuate its germ, even across this chasm of desolation, is one of the astounding evidences of its strength. That germ to which we owe the preservation of German culture, that thin current which ran all through the 17th and the early 18th century, had two distinct manifestations, the religious idealism of the North and the optimistic rationalism of the South, which found expression in the writings of Leibniz. The first of these movements produced in literature the religious lyrics of Protestant hymn-writers, in music the cantatas, passions, and oratorios of a Bach and a Handel. Its ultimate expression was the Messias of Klopstock, which in a sense combined the two forms of art, for as Dr. Kuno Franke says, it is an oratorio rather than an epic. As for Leibniz, according to the same authority, quote, it is hard to overestimate his services to modern culture. He stands midway between Luther and Goethe. In a time of national degradation and misery, his philosophy offered shelter to the higher thought and kept awake the hope of an ultimate resurrection of the German people. The one event which signalizes that resurrection more than any is the Battle of Rosbach in 1757. This was the shot that reverberated through Europe and summoned all eyes to witness a new spectacle.
a prince who declared himself the servant of his people. With Frederick the Great as their hero, the Germans of the North could rally to the hope of a fatherland. Their poets, tongue-tied for centuries, broke forth in new lyric bursts, the vision of a united, triumphant Germany, fired patriots, philosophers, scientists, and artists with enthusiasm for a new ideal. This idealism, or sentimentality, stood in sharp contrast to the somewhat cynical rationalism of Rousseau, Diderot, and d'Alembert. But it had an even stronger influence on art. The immediate effect of this regeneration was an increased output of literature and of music, a greater individuality or assertiveness in the native styles, the perfection of its technique and the crystallization of its forms. In literature it bore its first fruits in the works of Klopstock and Wieland. Already in 1748, Klopstock had, quote, sounded that morning call of joyous idealism, which was the dominant note of the best in all modern German literature. End quote. This poet is an important figure to us, for he is of all writers the most admired in the period of musical history with which these chapters deal. His very name brought tears to the eyes of Charlotte in Goethe's Werther. Leopold Mozart could go no further in his admiration of his son's genius than to compare him to Klopstock. Wieland, who lived less in the realm of the spiritual but was fired with a greater enthusiasm for humanity, was among the first to give expression to his hope of a united Germany. He was personally acquainted with Mozart and early appreciated his genius. A transformation was thus wrought in the minds of the people of Northern Europe. Much as in the humanitarian revelation of the Italian Renaissance, men became introspective, discovered in the recesses of their souls a new sympathy. Men's hearts became more receptive than they had ever been, and as after the strife of centuries, Europe settled down to a placid period of reconstruction, all this found manifold expression in people's lives and in their art. The close of the Seven Years' War in 1763 had brought an era of comparative peace. Austria, though deprived of some territory, entered upon a period of prosperity which augured well for the progress of art. Prussia, on the other hand, proceeded upon a career of unprecedented expansion under the enlightened leadership of the great Frederick. The Viennese court, which had patronized music for generations, now became what Bernie called it, quote, the musical capital of Europe, end quote, while Berlin and Potsdam constituted a new centre for the cultivation of the art. Frederick, the friend of Voltaire, though himself a lover of French culture and preferring the French language to his own, nevertheless encouraged the advancement of things native. He insisted that his subjects patronize home manufactures, affect native customs, and, contrary to Joseph II in Vienna, he engaged German musicians for his court, in preference to Italians. Their two courts may thus be conceived as the strongholds of the two opposing styles, German and Italian, which infusing produced the new expressive style that is the most characteristic element of classic music. 2. To make clear this conflict of styles represented by the North and the South, by Berlin and Vienna, respectively, we need only ask the reader to recall what we have said about the music of Bach in Volume 1 and that of Pergolesi in the last chapter. In the one we saw the culmination of polyphonic technique upon a modern harmonic basis, a fusion of the old polyphonic and the new monodic styles. 
enriched by infinite harmonic variety with a wealth of ingenious modulations and chromatic alterations, and a depth of spirit analogous to the religious idealism which we have cited as the dominant intellectual note of post-Reformation Germany. In the other hand, the direct outcome of the melodic idea, and therefore essentially melodic, we found a consummate grace and lightness, but also a certain shallowness, a desire to please, to tickle the ear rather than to stir the deeper emotions. In the course of time this style came to be absolutely dominated by harmony, through the peculiar agency of the figured bass. But instead of an ever-shifting harmonic foundation, an iridescent variety of color, we have here an essentially simple harmonic structure, largely diatonic and centering closely around the tonic and dominant as the essential points of gravity, swinging the direction of its cadences back and forth between the two, while employing every melodic device to introduce all the variety possible within the limitations of so simple a scheme. While then the style of Bach and the North Germans, on the one hand, had a predominant unity of spirit, it tended to variety of expression. The styles of the Italians, on the other hand, brought a variety of ideas, with a comparative simplicity of scheme or monotony of expression, which quickly crystallized into stereotyped forms. One of these forms, founded upon the simple harmonic scheme of tonic and dominant, developed, as we have seen, into the instrumental sonata, a type of which the violin sonatas of Corelli and his successors, Francesco Gimignani, Pietro Locatelli, and Giuseppe Tardini, and the piano sonatas of Domenico Scarlatti, are excellent examples. Many Italians managed to endow such pieces with a breadth, a song-like sweep of melody, to which their inimitable facility of vocal writing led them quite naturally. Pergolesi especially, as we have said, deserves special merit for the introduction of the so-called singing allegro in the first movements of his sonatas. Germans were quick to follow these examples, and their innate tendency to variety of expression caused them to add another element, that of rhythmic contrast. Indeed, although the Italian style continued to hold sway throughout Europe long after 1700, we find among its exponents an ever greater number of Germans. Their proclivity for harmonic fullness, pathos, and dignity was moreover reinforced by the influence of French orchestral music of the style of Lully and his successors. It was reserved for the Germans also to develop the sonata form as we know it today, to build it up into that wonderful vehicle for free fancy and for the philosophic development of musical ideas. Before introducing the reader to the men of this epoch, who prepared the way for Haydn and Mozart, we are obliged, for a better understanding of their work, to describe briefly the nature and development of that form which serves, so to speak, as a background to their activity. Certain successive epochs in the history of our art have been so dominated by one or another type of music that they might as aptly derive their names from the particular type in fashion as the early Christian era did from Plainchant. Thus, the 16th century might well be called the age of the madrigal, the early 17th the period of accompanied monody, and the late 17th the epoch of the suite. As the vogue of any of these forms increases, a chain of conventions and rules invariably grows up which tends first to fix it, then to force it into stereotypes which become the instrument of mediocre pedants. The very rules by which it grows to perfection become the shackles which arrest its expansion. 
Thus it usually deteriorates almost immediately after it has reached its highest elevation at the hand of genius, unless it gives way to the broadening, liberalizing assaults of iconoclasts, and only in the measure to which it is capable of adapting itself to broader principles is further life vouchsafed to it. It continues then to exist beyond the period which is, so to speak, its own, in a sort of afterglow of glory, less brilliant but infinitely richer in interest, color, and all-pervading warmth. All the types above mentioned, from the madrigal down, have continued to exist in a sense to our time, and though our age is obviously as antagonistic to the spirit of the madrigal as it is to that of plain chant, we might cite modern part songs partaking of the same spirit which have a far stronger appeal. The modern symphonic suites of a Bizet or a Rimsky-Korsakov, as compared to the orchestral suite of the 18th century, furnish perhaps the most striking case in point. The period which this and the following chapters attempt to describe is dominated by the sonata form. Not a composer of instrumental music, and it was essentially the age of instrumental music, but essayed that form in various guises. Even the writers of opera did not fail to adopt it in their instrumental sections, and even in their arias. But the decades which are our immediate concern represent a formative stage, because there is much variety much uncertainty, both in nomenclature and in the matter itself. Nomenclature is never highly specialized at first. A name, primarily, denotes a variety of things which have perhaps only slight marks of resemblance. Thus we have seen how sonata, derived from the verb suonare, to sound, is at first a name for any instrumental piece, in distinction to cantata, a vocal piece. The canzona da sonar, or canzon sonata, symbolized the application of the vocal style to instruments, and the abbreviation sonata was for a time almost synonymous with sinfonia, as in the first solo sonatas for violin of Baccio Marini about 1617. The sonata in its modern sense is essentially a solo form, but during a century or more of its evolution, the most familiar guise under which it appeared was the trio sonata that, as we have seen, broadened out to symphonic proportions while adapting some of the features of the orchestral suite, and the sonata became more specifically a solo piece, or better, a group of pieces, for the sonata of our day is a cyclical piece. But through all its outward manifestations, and irrespective of them, it underwent a definite and continuous metamorphosis, by which it assumed a more and more definite pattern or patterns, which eventually fused into one. The cycle sonata undoubtedly had its root idea in the dance suite, and for a long time that derivation was quite evident, the minuet obstinately holding its place in the scheme until Beethoven converted it into the scherzo, was the last birthmark to disappear. The variety of rhythm that the dance suite offers is also clearly preserved in the principle of rhythmic contrasts between the movements. These comprise usually a rapid opening movement embodying the essentials of the sonata form, a contrasting slow movement, shorter and in less conventional form, sometimes aria, sometimes theme and variations, stands next. The finale in the lighter Italian form was usually a quick dance movement or a short, brilliant piece of slight significance. In the German and more developed examples it was often a rondo, one principal theme recurring at intervals throughout the piece with fresh episodical matter interspersed, and more and more frequently it was cast in the first movement form. 
Between the slow movement and the finale is the place for the minuet, if the sonata is in four movements. Haydn, though not the first to use it, quickened its tempo and enriched it in content. A second minuet, Menuetto Duo, appears in the earlier symphonies of Haydn and Mozart, which by and by is incorporated with the first as trio. The familiar alternate section, always followed by a repeat of the minuet itself. Of course, the distinguishing feature of the sonata over all other forms is the peculiar pattern of at least one of its movements, most usually the first, the outcome of a long evolution which, in its finally settled form with the later Mozart and with Beethoven, became the most efficient, the most flexible, and the most convincing medium for the elaboration of musical ideas. The first movement form, as it has been called, appears in the 18th century in either of two primary patterns, the binary, consisting of two sections, and the ternary, consisting of three. The binary, gradually introduced by the Italians, notably Pergolesi and Alberti, is simply a broadening of the song form in two sections, each of which is repeated, having one single theme or subject presented in the following key arrangement, A denoting the tonic or home key, and B the dominant or related key, A to B repeated, B to A repeated. This, with broadened dimensions and more definite thematic distinction within each section, gave way to A1 to B2 repeated, then B1 to A2 repeated, 1 and 2 representing first and second theme, respectively. In this arrangement, the second section simply reproduces the thematic material of the first, but in the reverse order of keys or tonality. It should be added that the second theme was usually, at this early stage of development, a mere suggestion, an embryo with very slight individuality. The leading representatives of this type of form as applied to the suite as well as the sonata were Pegolesi, Domenico Alberti, Handel, J.S. Bach, J.F. Fasch, Domenico Scarlatti, Locatelli, and Gluck and most of the later Italians, who continued to prefer this easily comprehended form, placing but simple problems of musicianship before the composer. It was eminently suited to the easy grace of polite music, of the salon music of the 18th century. But, in the works of German suite writers, especially at the restatement of the first theme after the double bar, displays almost from the beginning a tendency toward variety, abridgment, expansion, and modulation of harmony. Gradually, this section assumed such a bewildering, fanciful character, such a variety of modulations, that the subject in its original form was forgotten by the hearer, and all recollection of the original key had been obliterated from the mind. Composers then grasped the device of restating the first theme in the original key after its free development of it, and then restating the second theme as before. Both the tonic and the dominant elements of the first section or exposition are now seen to be repeated in the tonic key in the restatement section or recapitulation, and the form has assumed the following shape. A1 to B2 repeated, and then to be repeated, A2 and a development or working out, then A1 to B1, and all from A2 to be repeated. This is clearly a three-division form, and as such is closely allied to the ballad form or ternary song form, which is as old as the binary. Already Johann Sebastian Bach, in his prelude in F minor, in the second part of the well-tempered clavichord, gives an example of it, and in Immanuel Bach, 
and his German contemporaries, this type becomes a standard, but it is curious to observe how strongly the Italian influence worked upon composers of the time, for whenever the desire to please is evident in their work, we see them adopt the simpler pattern, and even when the ternary form is used, the so-called working out is little more than an aimless sequence of meaningless passage work, intended to dazzle by its brilliance and its grandiose effects, but with little relation to the subject matter of the piece. Even Mozart and Haydn veered back and forth between the two types until they had arrived at a considerably advanced state of maturity. The second theme, as time went on, became more and more individualized, and as it assumed more distinct rhythmic and melodic characteristics, it lent itself more freely to logical development, like the principal subjects, became in fact a real subject on a par with the first. With Stamitz and the Mannheim School, at last, we meet the idea of contrast between the two themes, not only in key but in spirit, in meaning, as with characters in a story. These differences can readily be taken hold of and elaborated. The themes may be played off against each other, and they may be understood as masculine and feminine, as bold and timid, or as light and tragic. The possibilities of the scheme are unlimited. The complications under which an ingenious mind can conceive it are infinite in their interest. Thus only, by means of contrast, could states of mind be translated into musical language. Thus only was it possible to give voice to the deeper sentiments, the new feelings that were tugging at the heartstrings of Europe. Only with this great principle of emotional contrast did the art become receptive to the stirrings of Sturm und Drang, of incipient romanticism. Thus only could it give expression to the graceful melancholy of a Mozart, the majestic ravings of a Beethoven. End of section 4, read by Sandra, near Montreal, 2021.